From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and a I'm Jeffrey Masters, and as I recently learned, the history of opera is woven with a surprisingly transgressive relationship to gender. The earliest known works had female sopranos in the roles of boys. Famous composers like Mozart and Strauss, all of them wrote male characters explicitly created to be played by women. And of course, there were the castrati, men who were castrated before puberty in order to preserve their high voices. The castrati were celebrated during their time, even considered superstars, and they would play both male and female roles. Now, despite all that, when it comes to singers in opera who are out and identify as trans, there are relatively fewer examples to pull from. When Lucia Lucas was first coming out in 2014, she thought it very well could be the end of her career. There was no precedent, no rule book, and while she has since gone on to make opera history, that was never a guarantee. Lucia's history-making turn as the title role in Don Giovanni made her the first known trans person to have a principal role in an opera in the States, and that experience is documented in the new documentary from James Kicklater called The Sound of Identity. Lucia is here today to talk about all that and more, so let's get to it. Without further ado, here's Lucia Lucas. To begin with, I want to go back to when you were first coming out. Was there any precedent or other openly trans opera singers that you could look at to see how being out might potentially affect your career? No, actually. This has sort of been a rule book that I've written myself over the last five, six years, because there wasn't. There were some professional singers who previously had careers who then transitioned. So there was a little bit of an idea what might happen with my voice, which is not much. And there was a little bit of an idea about how the business might treat somebody who is trans. Like, there are examples of it, but nobody who was on the stage performing. It was just sort of, how does this all work? So I had to decide how I was going to handle each individual thing, and hopefully it was in a good way. Oh, and so in essence, to use your word, you're like writing the rule book for every trans person who will follow you. I mean, it's my rule book for me. But I, I do hope that if I'm doing my best, that at least administration and different opera houses can see that it's possible that it's possible that this private thing this this very thing very specific to somebody can exist only in their personal life and it doesn't need to exist on stage the opera doesn't need to be reworked nothing needs to happen you can just glue a beard on and I'll go out there and I'll sing and it's fine and I don't care and I just want to keep doing my job you know, if I'm going to sing baritone, I just want to go sing baritone really well. And so now that you have been out, you came out officially in 2014. How welcoming have you found the opera world? Well, <laughs> the public in opera houses, they're typically a little bit more conservative than the people who are performing. But I will have to say that they're way more understanding and willing to at least inquire instead of shutting down somebody who is not someone who they're used to seeing on stage. 
we're seeing more and more shows start to break that down. I think that that comes with so many TV studios that are existing now. There's more TV studios than have ever existed. You know, we have we have Netflix, we have Amazon, we have Hulu, we have Apple with their own series. You don't have to make, you know, 40 million or opening weekend. You're not playing to that many people in a theater. You can play to niche audiences. Like everybody doesn't have to like it and it's set up that way and it's and it's beautiful that way. We can tell specialty stories to specialty people. You know, one massive difference between Hollywood and opera, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have almost only played male roles and that is how your career is likely to continue. Is that right? Yes, the majority of characters that I play in my mainstream main stage career are men. Specifically angry men between the age of 35 and 50. <laughs> that's that's my fock. So the fock is what type of voice you have. And so because of the characteristics of your voice, the, the timbre and like the notes, you are in that category almost only for opera. Yeah, I mean, unless a new composer wants to write something else, which is actually the case with Tobias Picker. He's writing The Danish Girl for me. You know, that's kind of something special. And that's because a composer said, hey, I would like to do this for you. Tobias Picker is someone we get to see in the documentary about you, The Sound of Identity. In it, you actually address the big question I had going into it. You know, you are a trans woman playing these male roles. And I wonder what kind of effect that has on your own experience of gender and any gender dysphoria. In the documentary, you say that it has no effect. I think that the assumption would be the exact opposite. C can you elaborate on that for us? Well, it's not that it doesn't have any effect at all. I'm not going to I'm not going to belittle that that people have gender dysphoria or that even that I don't have it. But with me, I tend to think through things a lot. I tend to be really heady about it. So before I came out, I was thinking, okay, could I possibly still play these men? So I came out and the next week I had four performances. So it was just like on stage, on stage, on stage, because I, I was living in Germany at the time, still am. So I would come to the opera house in a dress and makeup and everything like that. And then they would glue a beard on me, you know, draw wrinkles on my forehead. And I would go out there and scream, not scream, but I would go out there and sing beautifully my part, just like the week before. Then I would go home. I realized, oh, I can just leave it on the stage. I can be myself in my own private life, and I can do my job the same way, if not better, than before on the stage. And so it's not that I didn't have dysphoria, but I sort of mentally went through it before I did it. And then after a week, I sort of said, is it too much? Can I handle this? And I said, yeah, no, I can handle this. This is about acting. It's not about anything else. But yeah, I had sort of prepared myself in advance. I also think that we view gender performance differently depending on the performer's gender, and we have different expectations. A man in a dress is funny. That is traditional drag, and we know what to do with that. It's comedic. But when we see a woman in a suit, we don't have an automatic social primer to know how to react, per se. And along those lines, I think that nobody goes to a drag show and thinks that every single performer they're watching is experiencing gender dysphoria. 
Well, let me contextualize it a little bit more, though, for opera, because... No, yeah, 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 please, please. No, I mean, of course you have a point, definitely. What, what I would love to say is that opera has had a tradition of women playing men, except not exactly. There's a tradition of women playing young men or boys, hosen role, or, or it's just pants roles, you know, it's just women playing men. There is this sort of association with like a little bit higher voice, like maybe a mezzo-soprano or something like that, playing a teenager. So when you have me playing Wotan, I think it's more of a disconnect for the audience. And I'm I'm fine to say, okay, I, I understand that maybe it's a little, it's not quite the drag you're used to. And when you are performing, does it feel the same to you to be playing these male roles now compared to before you came out? Like, is it more fun since you're now just performing masculinity for a short period of time? It It is the same and it is more fun. It is the same because I didn't arrive at my identity, you know, in the last five, six years. I knew when I was like five or six years old. Maybe I didn't have the vocabulary for it, but I knew back then. So the context of me growing up, I always saw gender. I always saw the difference. I always saw how women were treated and how men were treated. When I was growing up, I had to learn these traits of masculinity. I had to learn how to walk in a masculine way. I had to learn how to talk in a masculine way. So I learned how to take on these masculine traits and how to, quote, pass as as a masculine person. So once I came out, it wasn't like I learned how to be feminine. I just sort of like shook off all of these fake gestures that I had that were this sort of like exoskeleton that was like protecting me from the cruel world. And so when I go back on stage, it's like, I know how to do all of these movements. I learned them a long time ago. They served me well for protection, you know, going into high school and into college, but I just use them for the stage now. And I have to say that if you have been in sort of this life or death situation, like being able to protect yourself situation, you've learned these gestures really, really well. If you've learned how to be masculine so that you don't get picked on for being too femme, like you've learned them very, very well. And now I pay my rent with it. And so going off of that, what do you think that helps you bring to these male roles that a guy playing them might not have? Well, I think whenever I play a father character, you know, there's definitely a little bit of mother in every father character that I play. I don't worry about showing the caring side of a father which I think is difficult, especially in opera when you have, you know, some sort of one-dimensional character, father-type figure. On the other side of things, when I'm playing some character like like Ford and Falstaff, I can make this guy as nasty as possible and as hyper-masculine as possible because it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm never going to say, oh, well, I don't think my character would do that. If a director wants to go, like, really hard into hyper-masculinity. Like, sure, let's do it. I have a keen eye for that. And I and I don't worry about that reflecting on me. It has nothing to do with me. That also, in a way, answers the question that I had earlier about gender dysphoria. You and your body, you know it's a performance. And it is your job to play these roles. 
absolutely. And and I'm not saying that everybody has to be there and that everybody's going to get there. But if your job is to do something that is against your own personal identity, see if you can detach it from there. You might be able to do your job even better. And it sounds like, too, that that you have this tremendous voice. It blows me away every time I hear it. And this is kind of like the only outlet in order to like perform. To perform as much as you want is to play these male roles, right? Yeah. I mean, it, as far as like being able to pay my rent with it, yes. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, or I'm a bit, big advocate of, if you're not getting the performing experience that you want or need, make it happen. Make your own experiences, even if it means performing in a tiny little theater for 10 people. Go do that. Do that. It's, it's important. But yes, if I want to pay my rent by performing on stage, I need to do it for a significant crowd, which means, you know, singing in opera houses, which means singing my traditional fach. And speaking of your fach, your voice Something I've always wondered is if your voice and your vocal cores are genetically predisposed to singing opera, or is it something that anyone can learn to do? Well, there's there's a genetic component, of course. You know, how big your parents are is going to affect that. There's also learned parts. You know, I I swam from like five years old until college. That's something that was not necessarily genetic, but it's very, very important to be able to breathe and breathe deeply. And so that's something that was trained. I trained how to breathe through swimming. And also I played French horn. So those were two things that were learned. But then on the other side of things, you know, both my parents are very tall and both my parents have like big rib cages. You know, that's a genetic component to it. Okay, so those are your genetic advantages for why you're able to do this. But what about me? What about everyone else? Do I think that anybody can sing? Yes. Do I think that anybody can sing at a very high level? Yes. But can you pick the fach? No. I think that there are certain things, the, the way the, specifically the way the bones in your face are shaped, along with your vocal cords and whatever hormones are splashed with, that will affect your sound. And those aren't things that you really can control. But you can, I think that anybody can sing. I, I, I really do. I don't think that one teacher is right for everybody. I think that people find people who speak to them and can teach them in the right way to discover what their most authentic voice is. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to sing soprano and you're an alt, you know, you're only going to get so far. You need to figure out where your voice sits comfortably. And I think that there's a lot of genetics that determine that. How much do you have to work to keep it up now at your level? Are you singing every day? I mean, I sing every day because I work almost every day or I'm studying for a new role or something like that. I had however much, I had seven hours of rehearsal today. I had to take about a year or so to find my core technique. And I found that back in California a long, long time ago before I went to grad school. And I worked really, really hard for like six months to a year. And I found out what my sort of core sound was. And once I refined that, then it was like I could go to different teachers and I could get better. But if you heard my voice 20 years ago and you heard it now, you would still say, yes, that is the same voice. 
clearly my voice is better now than it was 20 years ago, but it's still the same voice. Whereas I think that there are singers, you know, that have changed. And all voices do change as we get older, or at least that's what I've always heard. Is that, is that not the case? Well, that is a that's sort of a that's sort of a tricky question with me specifically. When people talk about baritones and basses specifically, they say that somewhere between 35 and 50, the larynx, it's cartilage and it gets harder. So the timbre of the voice changes a little bit. So they say that, you know, older baritones and basses that their their voices are like wine and it gets better with age or it gets more velvety or you can push harder on it or whatever. But that has a lot to do with hormones. And since I've decided to take the Fountain of Youth elixir, I don't know exactly how that's going to affect that. So, you know, we see. But um, (laughs) I've been singing the same way for a long time and I plan to keep singing this way. So I don't know... I don't know necessarily that my my larynx is going to calcify or something like that, like many other baritones have. We'll see. Who knows? I'm just going to keep trying to sing well. <laughs> is that something you think about a lot? Oh, no, not at all. If I lose my voice and I want to stay in the business, then I'll stay in the business. So, you know, I'll go, I'll, I'll conduct or I'll do something else. But Right now, I'm trying to treat my voice well, and I'm trying to stay in it. And I have a deal with Tobias Picker that I will do his his premiere. So, you know, I got to stick in it. And that's the Danish Girl opera adaptation that's being written for you. When will it be up and on stage for an audience to see? You know, right now, everything's getting rescheduled. Don't really want to talk about it. But basically, everything's been thrown up in the air. But you are still working, which is incredibly impressive. Well, yeah, I mean, that's because I'm in Europe and in the U.S. Like, I guess there are certain performances going on. Like, uh, I have a friend who just did like a drive-in opera. And so there are sorts of ways that people are trying to find um, a way forward with, with their art. But I think in Europe, there's more happening. Like in Germany, there's 80 plus theaters that have full time ensembles. Whether they're working or not, they're collecting a paycheck. So the thing is, is in the U.S., if you say, okay, well, you can only play to 20% capacity of your house. Well, then they say, well, then how are you going to make money? But in Europe, if you say you can only play to 20% capacity, they say, okay, well, we're paying everybody anyway. Why don't we just do that? So that's what's happening is people are trying to go forward. Like, yeah, okay, we need masks when we're off stage and we have to do these and, like, we have to stage operas in a very specific way so that people are far apart and whatever. But people are trying to find a way forward because, well, because people are being paid anyway. If we're talking about trying to make money, it's like, okay, well, if we do the show, we lose less money, you know? Whereas whereas an American company, they can say, all right, we're just gonna, we're just gonna take a time out right now. We're going to take all the stuff that we're going to plan. We're going to wait for this to to clear out. And then, you know, we'll do what we're going to do. It's also just fascinating to think about. I'm concerned about all of like the restaurants and the bars that are never going to reopen and like physical spaces. It's fascinating to think about the performers and the creators that are going to leave the industry forever. Yeah. Think about Juilliard, let's say. Juilliard is one of the best, one of the most well-known schools 
in the world for for performing arts. Well, what's going to happen to these people who, let's say they graduated last semester, what are they going to do? Let's say they were like prime, ready to start their career. What happens to those people? What about the people who graduate in a year? What about the people who graduate the year after that? In 2008, 2009, there was the financial crisis, right? So we can look at that sort of as a model for what happened. And what happened was there was there was a traffic jam of two or three years of people who were qualified for positions, but there was not any space for them. I mean, we're not even talking about arts, but when we're talking about arts, what's going to happen if you haven't already broken in? There are going to be certain people who just go, you know what? I'm not waiting around to see how this shakes out. I'm going to go get a job doing something else. But even if people stick stick around and stick in it, there's sort of a traffic jam of however many people graduate to go into like young artist programs or something like that. Any sort of training program is going to be affected by that. That's a great way to put it. The traffic jam competing for the smaller pool of jobs. Right. So the people who are already in the system those are the people who are going to be the ones that are working right away. In, in, in your story, you were working in opera when you came out as trans. Yes. It would have been a bigger challenge had you come out as trans and then tried to break into opera, right? Absolutely. And so part of, part of my journey and part of my story and part of my like writing the rule book for, for myself is that I say, hey, I had a career. I still want a career. There's this very little thing that has changed about me. Can I still have a career? I think that it's a very good sort of example of how accepted and how willing the business is to keep specifically me in it. Now, if I was trans trying to break into the business, I I think that it would have been much harder. But with me and also one of my friends, Adrian Angelico, with both of us, we already had careers. And we said... We want to keep our careers. May we still do that. Once we do that and we show that we can still do our jobs while existing as trans, then it's sort of like, okay, so this isn't a thing. I hope this isn't a thing. I hope that it at least doesn't disqualify us or somebody else from being able to do it in the future. This particular situation that we're in right now makes it more difficult. But I think that you're going to see people coming into the career while trans which of course is the wonderful thing. And now they can point to somebody who is doing it and succeeding. You had already proven yourself too. And I think a big example of that is just your age. A lot of the roles you played typically go to older people in their 40s and yet you are playing them and getting cast already. Yeah, when I when I go audition, especially for Verdi and Wagner, I am singing, I'm singing auditions against people who are 15, 20 years older than me regardless of of gender, of course. But but just that, you know, people are older than me. I did my first Votan before 40, which is not really commonplace right now. You know, I have to tell you, I find opera to be incredibly enchanting. I made all my friends sit down and watch Anthony Roth Constanza and Akhenaten when it premiered on the PBS Great Performances. Mm -hmm. And they were like, what are we watching? And I was like, it's art. And it's stunning. It completely blew me away. But I just wonder for you, what attracts you to opera? I, I, I've thought about this because I, I don't know. I sort of randomly fell into opera 
but it's definitely my medium, for sure. And I think the reason why is opera is all about taking or finding the core of the moment. An aria will be a split second in time. So we basically like stop time and then we take the split second and the emotions that are felt in the split second and then expand them out to five, ten minutes or whatever. And then we move on with the story. But taking that and then singing about it, it's kind of absurd in one way. But I love finding that core and making it as genuine as possible and saying, you know what? This isn't ridiculous. This isn't ridiculous. This is important. This is a moment. We're going to make it as genuine as possible and be in the moment as much as possible, even though we're singing, maybe in a different language, and the time scale is all messed up. But we're going to find the core of this and make it honest. And I think that's just sort of why I fell in love with that is because I have figured out how to do that. I think that's a beautiful answer. And an amazing place to leave that. So thank you so much for taking the time with this. Thank you for having me. All the way from Germany. And that was Lucia Lucas. You can find out more about Lucia in the documentary she's a part of at their website. That's thesoundofidentity.com. Now, last week, we launched our annual listener survey. I really do want to hear from you. I want to know what's working, what's not, what you want to hear more of. It is anonymous, so any and all feedback is welcome. There is a link in the show notes here, as well as all across our social media channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. Thank you, as always, for helping us to spread the word about our new episodes. Things like that really do make a massive difference. So thank you. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our work at advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.